Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you're a marketer, you know that questions about emerging technologies seem to pop up daily. What can blockchain do beyond cryptocurrency? What's the difference between machine learning and AI? How effective is influencer marketing technology? To help you navigate these topics, enroll in the Institute for Brand Marketing, a complimentary program for marketers developed in collaboration between IBM Watson Advertising and Adweek. Don't miss our first course on advanced marketing technologies, where you can learn skills that help you advance. Together, we'll explore the next wave of marketing disruption and help you learn how to apply today's cutting-edge technologies to your everyday business challenges. Don't miss this opportunity. Get started today at adweek.com slash IBM. That's adweek.com slash IBM. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, design, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. With me as she is each week is Kamiko McCoy, our social editor and co-host on the podcast. Uh, Kamiko, always great to have you. Always happy to be here and spew about how I don't like breakfast foods. Ah, oh, man. Lukewarm takes. Wait, what <laughs> All your yeah, we don't even have time to get derailed into your food <laughs> opinions. Kamiko's a lovely human being with with many many charms, and her food opinions are, are really the exception uh, that proves the rule. Uh, we've also got back Doug Zanger, a senior editor on the Agencies and Creativity Beat. Uh, Doug, welcome back. Thank you. We've got a lot to talk about uh, from your neck of the woods uh, this mm-hmm. week. We'll dive into that in just a minute. But also, welcome back to Robert Clara, uh, Adweek's uh, senior editor who covers all things branding, brand history, uh, history of the world, and everything in it. Uh, Robert, always great to have you. Gene, thanks for shackling me and dragging me back here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, what's your uh, before we get to your what, what's your your book deal status these days? You've cranked out several mm. awesome books in, uh, over the years. Uh, do you have one in the works? Do you have one out? Like, well, I'm actually working on what I hope will be number four. And I wonder, has my agent called you by any chance? Because he'd like to know where that <laughs> book is too. Um, I am currently uh, still in library mode and uh, hope to have a proposal pulled together by early next year if all goes well. Oh, nice. Well, um, we are not helping anything by keeping you tied up with Adweek's 40th anniversary. And how we are celebrating is by looking back at how the ad industry, the marketing industry, uh, has changed over the last four years since Adweek was uh, launched. And uh, we will uh, be talking about that in a little bit, too. Uh, Just we've kind of started rolling out that content, but there is a lot more to come. And Robert is our history guru who's going to be helping with that. So that'll be a fun discussion. But first... Let's talk about the news. 
A lot of big stories coming out of the agency uh, world uh, this past week. Uh, I think a lot of it hit in like one day. Uh, and Doug Zanger uh, was the uh, the lucky guy who got to cover all this. Uh, the uh, did, a, did a fantastic job. Um, so the one I wanted to talk about first, just because it was really fascinating in several different ways, um, is the lawsuit that has been filed against TBWA. Well, it's obviously a global agency network. Uh, they were our global. They, they are our global agency of the year, uh, and uh, you know this. They include Media Arts Lab, uh, which does all the advertising for Apple. Uh, and you know, TBWA is uh, still kind of one of the hottest shops out there. It's been around for quite a while, and is is I would say best known for their for their um, Apple work. Wouldn't you say, Doug? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, they they're consistent across the board, though. And uh, so. One key player in that uh, history of their work with Apple is a guy named Duncan Milner. Uh, and this past week, he filed a lawsuit, or at least we learned that he has filed a lawsuit uh, against TBWA, a uh, wrongful termination suit uh, citing age discrimination, among other factors. Uh, he essentially claims, and Doug, I'll kick it over to you to kind of walk us through a few of the details here, uh, but essentially saying that after, what, 30-so years with the agency, he was kind of unceremoniously uh, moved into a new role, which he describes as being demoted um, around, uh, I want to say, 2016, and then uh, and then kind of taken off the Apple account, and then has just the way he describes in the lawsuit, just kind of been in a, a bit of a purgatory uh, since then, working at uh, Mal, Mal for Good, Media Arts Lab for Good, uh, which is this kind of charity-oriented uh, wing, but much smaller. He said he went down to just supervising like nine people instead of a massive global uh, you know, pool. And then one day was was told, you know, we just, we don't have a job for you. We're folding this position uh, that you're in. And uh, yep, that's it. And so he filed a lawsuit. Uh, so tell us a bit more about how this all went down. Yeah, I mean, it 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 it, it looks like it's more of a, a slow burn. So part of the big issue with this is related to compensation. So according to the lawsuit, it, it really looks like that was one of the first dominoes of this where um, Milner had uh, had emailed the, the CEO uh, Troy Ruhanen to talk about his yearly performance bonus, lack of shares, uh, lack, lack of stock as compensation. So, you know, it, it really looked like that this was one of the signals that something really was afoot. And then to your point, David, uh, he did get moved out of the Apple shoot. Um, and he found out about it before boarding a flight to Prague for a, a commercial shoot. He was being told that he was uh, being taken out of the chief creative officer position. And uh, at that point, there wasn't really much of a clear plan for his next role. Um, and then again, to your point, it, it, it was just this slow burn down to the point of, you know, this, this role just doesn't exist anymore. He was um, offered a couple of uh, positions, but um, according to some sources, turned them down. Um, so the writing was, was on the wall, um, as to his role within the agency. And he decided that this was going to be the best course of action. And he had been with the agency, as you alluded to, for, uh, over 30 years. He was really credited with helping to build Apple into the powerhouse that it was, 
uh, and that it is uh, through marketing. And you take a look at some of those iconic campaigns, Silhouette for iPod, you had Mac versus PC. More recent example would be Shot on iPhone. That was that was a campaign that that he led as well. And uh, you know, he was very close to Steve Jobs. I mean, that was another you know another piece of this is that he was one of the you know one of, one of the people that uh, was with with Jobs uh, near the end of his life as well. So there, there's quite a history there, and for it to erode like that became a shock to him and i think he in talking to us he definitely is still shocked about all of this and really felt the only recourse was to go this route with the lawsuit yeah and obviously uh the agency is not really talking as most most don't uh when they are sued uh they did confirm that they uh basically had folded mal for good uh, which he was you know, kind of had this leadership position in that they folded it into, I believe, TBWH Hyatt uh, Day in Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so they just kind of said, oh, you know, we folded it in these two, you know, agencies together and, you know, hey, there's not a position anymore, uh, which he doesn't necessarily, you know, deny. He's just saying that the, that all of this he felt was kind of him being uh, kind of railroaded out the door. In situations like this where you really only have one person talking, we've got the lawsuit where he, he, you know, he and his lawyers outline this whole case, uh, which, of course, is, is a one-sided case, as, uh, right. you know, as lawsuits, you know, filings tend to be. Um, so we're left to read between the lines uh, quite a bit. I, I think one thing that, that emerges even reading his take on it is this was a guy who was, you know, handpicked by Lee Clow, uh, the longtime, you know, creative chairman and, and kind of icon- iconic creative leader of TBWA who really launched Media Arts Lab for Apple. Uh, you know, he was the creative director on 1984. And, you know, so it, Milner uh, really s- sees himself as kind of the handpicked successor for that. He was also very close to Steve Jobs. Well, you know, Steve Jobs obviously passed away. Lee Clow, uh, you know, retired, and uh, and you know that left him with none of this kind of high-powered uh, support, right? right? Like these right. these these really top-level people who are still loyal to you, um, and and you know what that does open you up to is is some vulnerability, right? Of Apple's changed a lot in the last few years. They've brought in, uh, you know, Tor Myron, uh, you know, is now kind of running a lot of the creative and you've obviously got a new CEO at Apple. There's there's none of those kind of existing loyalties. And so, you know, my my kind of devil's advocate assumption on on what's happening there, either from the client side or from the agency side, is they wanted to go in, into a different direction. You know, they obviously wanted to put in some new talent. Uh, his argument is they put in talent that was quite a bit younger. Um, and, and cheaper. Uh, and cheaper. That's interesting because, you know, you still don't think of talent at this level as cheap, but maybe in the in the big scheme of things. Um, and, it, and it does sound like they were basically offering him, he says, offering him positions where he would have had to take a 50% pay cut uh, to stay on. They, they right. had already sus- suspended a lot of his... Um, you know, kind of stock-related bonuses. Uh, so he he's just getting the squeeze, you know, according to his description of it. Um, but but it does, you know, it's this. This is a bit of a. <clears throat> sorry, one second. <clears throat> this is a, this is a something I, I do think about a lot is that uh, you know you've got a lot more people staying in their careers for longer periods of time uh, as they as they should be able to. Um, but you know, all of us struggle to be as relevant as we were you know, at the, at the kind of the heights or the early points of our career. And, 
you know, not everybody can. And I'm not saying that he that he fell off or that, you know, we because we just don't know. Right. We but, don't right, know. Right. But, but, like, think, but chew on this for a second. So think think about the what's happening in the agency world right now where there's there's so much uh, disruption right now. And you are starting to see, to your point, David, there, there are a lot of people in the agency world that have been around for quite a long time, yet agencies are running on these paper-thin margins. They have to figure out how to be efficient and effective at the same time. So if you have somebody that's been in an agency for a long time and is carrying a big salary, and again, playing devil's advocate here, I'm not, you know, I'm just pointing out what, what's possible and what could be happening is that they have to look at the line items. They have to look at, at how much they're paying talent and whether or not they're, they're getting the return on that or whether they need to shift some of that salary from one person into five people. Um, so it's really, it's really tricky right now. And there are still plenty of people in this industry who are at a certain age, and I'm 50, so you know I can, I can sympathize with this a, a little bit, that's this is probably not the, the the first we'll see there's probably a few more out there that that we haven't really looked at but i think this is going to be a continuing issue for the agency community and uh, you know it's it's sad in, in a lot of ways well the you know there's there's a blessing and a curse of being a really high level executive creative. Um, you know, the blessing is that it's probably a relatively easy and fun job. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, easy, but come on. I mean, you're not you're not laying <laughs> laying railroads or whatever. The um, but then the 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 curse of it is that you know, on the one hand, you can take credit if you're a global chief creative officer, right, for an agency network. Uh, you can take credit for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can avoid blame for anything by saying, oh, you know, that one office, they're pretty weak, but look at all this amazing stuff the network produced. That's thanks to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can say that. Uh, but on the other hand, y- you know, it's a lot harder to take direct credit for anything uh, because, you know, you probably didn't come up with the idea. Right. You, pr- you questionably shaped the idea. Um you in the end, you know, so you have to wonder: Are a lot of these people just a rubber stamp? Are they just one last person who signs off on a on a concept before it gets pitched to a client? Like that role, again, you can kind of hide behind that, or you can be a victim of that. Uh, of like, it, it's got to be a very tough thing to defend yourself. And and he makes the, the point in his lawsuit of, hey, this shot on iPhone campaign, which is now I think one of the longest running ad campaigns in Apple history. That was me. But you know, right. They've done a lot of ads since then, you know, since that one kicked off. And, you know, he obviously hasn't been involved in the execution of those or in the evolution of the campaign. And a lot of his lawsuits just like, you know, Steve Jobs really liked me. You know, mm, Steve Jobs really yeah. liked what I was doing. It's like Jobs has been gone a while, man. You right, know, you, right. you got to have some relevance like that you can still point to. Um, and that's going to be a challenge. And we've seen that right with these global CCOs is a position that seems to be kind of dying off. Um, I think because that is yeah. a lot of money to spend on somebody with questionable impact sometimes on the right. on the quality of the work. No, I got you. Yeah, makes well, sense. We will keep an eye on this lawsuit. Definitely recommend everyone check out uh, the article uh, that uh, that Doug wrote. It's called the headline is "Longtime Exec on TBW." I can't say words today. Longtime Exec on TBWA's Apple account is suing the agency for cutting his job. Uh, so it's an interesting read. 
That same day uh, that that news broke, uh, we also learned that three more uh, senior leaders have are leaving the David Agency Network. This is the Ogilvy-owned uh, network uh, that has been very, very hot uh, the last few years. Uh, they were our breakthrough agency of the year a little while back. They did a lot of stuff for Burger King uh, and Coca-Cola and several others that you are probably familiar with. And they have um, kind of been hemorrhaging talent a bit uh, to an agency called Gut, uh, which just total coincidentally, right, Doug, was founded by <laughs> two of the guys who founded David yeah, and seem, seem to be going back through everyone they hired at David and just bringing them, o- bringing them on over. <laughs> Let's so, uh, get the band back together. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, this time around, uh, which we have, I can't remember if we talked about on the podcast, but Ricardo Casal and uh, Juan Javier Pena Plaza are two of the the kind of the most awarded young creatives on earth uh, right now. They've been at David. They vaulted from associate creative director straight up to ECD, which is unheard of. Um, and that was just a few years ago, but that obviously wasn't enough to keep them on. They've won, I don't even have the number in front of me, but many seven dozens. billion. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> won seven billion lines. No, they've it's I mean, like dozens close to 70. Lines. I want to say it was around 70. Uh, and uh, they they also brought over, I think they're head of account management, right? Carmen Rodriguez, Carmen uh, Rodriguez, is, yep, yeah. So this was you know, three people moving from one agency to another, but. We have had several of these, uh, and it's basically a sign that the talent war uh, that is shaping up between David and Gut, both based in Miami, uh, both kind of similar vibe creative shops, uh, is just is only heating up. And I should point right. out that that Gut is uh, is independent, and that seems to be one of the reasons is they're like, well, we, David was great, but we weren't the one thing we didn't have is independence because they were part of Ogilvy, which is owned by WPP. So tell us a bit about you wrote a great story about this talent war along with the news, uh, Doug. Tell us a bit about what's what's going on here. Yeah, and and to your point about about gut and the people leaving David, they have a lot of appreciation for what they what they accomplished at David. But to your point, David Griner, uh, the independence part is is a big deal to them. I think that they were very successful, and it's very obvious that they were successful at David. But they felt as though that they wanted to have their independence to be able to try to push things even farther so really that's that's a big that's a big piece of it so at at present so the gut currently has uh, 50 people and their offices are in Miami Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo and they've brought in uh let's see David's uh they brought in a managing director from David and Paulo Fagasha uh and then Ignacio and Joaquin also left David Creatives. They became partners and chief creative officers in in Argentina. Um, so what what's interesting is that as this battle is brewing and it it feels pretty public, I think everybody is everybody's playing nice. I, and I think that one of the points that was made was yeah, there there are plenty of clients to go around. But what what is intriguing is that everybody shares the uh, shares the wealth with Fernando Machado, the chief marketing officer of Burger King and also uh, chief marketing officer for Popeyes at the moment. So it, it's an interesting subplot to all of this. Yeah, it's like if you picture a, a Venn diagram of these two agencies, like smack in the middle is Fernando, right? Like for, Fernando right. Machado is the CMO of Burger King, of course, which has been working with David quite a, quite a bit. Um, he's also the acting global CMO of Popeyes. 
right. and which gut has been working on. <laughs> and right. So, and and then, I, have a, I have a feeling that's that's not the only where I, there's probably more that we don't yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. And, and, you know, Tim Hortons is another part of Restaurant Brands International, which is the parent company that Fernando Machado works for. So there's just all the it, you're right. It's a Venn diagram, but it's also turning into a mood board of, of sorts. I mean, it's just turning into this this, you know, you, get, you have to keep a scorecard on all of this. But what's interesting is that all of this talent has left David, but then David turns around and hires Pancho Cassis as their global chief creative officer. And Pancho Cassis uh, has had a remarkable stretch at Lola Mullen Low in Madrid. So not only did they get Pancho Cassis, but they also just opened up an office in Madrid. So they're expanding, uh, expanding over in Europe. So there's there's really a net benefit to all and and, and again everybody is um, you know everybody's being pretty pretty nice about it right now I, I will say that Fernando Musa who is the managing director of David in Miami uh, d- did say something that raised an eyebrow uh, to me yes yeah, my my favorite quote in the whole yeah, story yeah so uh, he, d- d- he yeah he said quote they are looking to David and trying to build what we did five years ago. We're not there. We're moving forward and looking forward. We're using this as an opportunity to aim high and go for bigger dreams. So that's a, a little bit of a you know a, a, a somewhat backhanded um, <laughs> smack of what what he thinks of gut. Uh, but again, uh, all parties seem to be playing nicely. Um, you know, there are no more restrictions because gut gut was started a couple of years ago. Uh, but I think that there are some legal things that are expiring, which means that agencies can now grab talent wherever, can grab clients wherever. Uh, so it looks like that the the gloves are off a little bit, and this will only get more interesting. You throw into the mix as well, Horizon Media and Pitbull's agency, 305 Worldwide. Now you've got Miami turning into this pretty interesting story, and, and we haven't really talked about Miami this much since the heyday of Crispin Porter Bogusky. Yeah, and, we, and we've had, you know, to give them credit, there's Community Is There, which yep, is a, Alma. A, an excellent excellent agency, Alma. Um, you know, but but I'd say the, that it's been kind of known as a multicultural marketing hub. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, South American or Mexican brands use Miami as like their entry point into uh, American markets because there's a lot of overlapping talent that's familiar with both markets. Um, you know, we see brands like Verizon or whoever will like go go to Miami to come mm-hmm. up with their multicultural marketing. But now, you know, to your point about Crispin Porter, uh, we're kind of getting back there to Miami being a – I mean, when you, when you have this much talent, when you have a talent war, and this is a big part of Doug's story, when you have a talent war, it's – you know who wins is the town where it's happening. Because yep. <laughs> those people, they come there, and yeah, they might leave, but Miami is a really – uh, I've talked to a bunch of these folks, and they love it. You know, it's like if you yeah. can live there, not pay New York salary, not pay New York dollars on your house, not pay LA prices, but but it's warm and it's nice, and you Too have access human. to these major brands. Too human. Yeah, I mean, I, man, it's a little much <laughs> for me. But the, um, you know, so no, it's it's really compelling. So I again strongly encourage everybody uh, check out Doug's coverage of the talent war uh, between gut and I, and to also to uh, you know to what you just said about. Why this is all suddenly flaring up is I think you're 100% right. I think there are non-solicitation agreements, there are non-compete agreements that are expiring, um, and and there were there are ones that will continue to expire uh, mm-hmm. over the course of the next year or two. And gut has kind of been in stealth mode 
Yep. Uh, I would say if, uh, considering like the folks behind it are not quiet, reserved people. So I think if it, <laughs> if it has seemed quiet, um, they, they did a fun thing at Cannes, though. They they had everyone who came to their session, they had them all pose like in the creative director photo pose, like with your arms crossed and wearing like a black T-shirt. And they took like a big Maybe looking off over. into the middle distance, maybe <laughs> yeah. not looking directly at the camera. <laughs> Firmly confident, the uh, right. but uh, they're starting to do more, and I, and it sounds like they've really are moving into a new phase where they're going to come out of nowhere and um, and just feel like they're taking over everything. So you heard it here, maybe not first, but you <laughs> like right, you heard right. it here that they're going to be they're going to be stepping it up. One All other right, uh, the, one other thing I wanted to point out is that you mentioned that I was a hundred percent right, so that is now on the record. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, that that was pointed out. That's going to be in your lawsuit someday. David Greiner often said, <laughs> or at least once said, I was 100% right. He did say right. once, yes. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back to, uh, to, to stop dominating the conversation and let our other friends come in and talk about fun stuff. So we'll be right back. Now's the time to invest in your inner CMO. Get started today with the Institute for Brand Marketing, a complimentary professional development program designed for brand marketers in collaboration between IBM Watson Advertising and Adweek. In the Institute for Brand Marketing's first course, Advanced Marketing Technologies, you can learn how to apply innovative, cutting-edge technologies such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, and blockchain to your everyday business challenges. Wherever you are in your career, the Institute for Brand Marketing can help you cultivate skills to advance. Get started today at adweek.com IBM. That's adweek.com IBM. And we're back. Robert, you still awake over there? I, I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here for the people. <laughs> we really appreciate you coming um, out of, it's got to be mounds and mounds of magazines, um, back pages and whatnot to join us here. So very excited to hear from you here. Um, for those of you that don't know, Robert, Clara um, is working on Adweek's 40th anniversary. That's something that we men- mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast, um, looking at magazines back in what, the 1970s? Back to 1979, yes. <laughs> Researching uh, where we've come from. What we've done, um, and it looks like you spend maybe like I would say a little over a year, eighteen months. Um, About eighteen months, yeah. A lot of paper cuts and <laughs> uh, flipping through the old bound. Uh, we have these huge red hardcover books, uh, and each of them uh, contains about six months worth of ad week. Uh, so I take about four of them home every weekend. No, actually, I don't do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been. Uh, I started in 1979, and I've been working my way forward. And uh, I, I have a, a head full O ad week. Bless it. I don't know what our policy is for workers' comp on those paper cuts, but I got band aids at my desk. Should you need them? <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in the time that you've been doing research, what would you say is uh, the most fascinating um, thing about the evolution of of our brand? Well, I, I mean, I, I I want to do a little plug here because we have a 40 years bold page at adweek.com uh, where I actually tease out a couple of uh, interesting tidbits. Uh, I do this every week. Do you want to hear a tidbit or do you want to hear about something particularly interesting that's jumped out at me? Why not both? Okay. Well, how, why don't we do a tidbit? I'll do even do two tidbits. We're going to go way back to 2005. It's not that far back. Uh, we sat down with a gentleman named Stuart Copeland, who is, is a name that a lot of millennials might not know. He used to be the drummer for a band called The Police. Ah, 
Aha. Uh-huh. And the police have sold over 75 million records if the friends at Wikipedia are to be believed. Uh, and Mr. Copeland is worth about $80 million. But when we caught up with him, he was writing music for Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi can't say that, TV commercials. And the crazy thing was not only did he talk to us, but he said that writing TV commercial music was a, quote, real world job. Uh, as opposed to touring with the police. And uh, what else? I've gone back to 1984. uh, And in 1984, I can't believe I actually remember this, um, the big craze in beverages was wine coolers. Mm. So I did a piece on that, specifically a brand called Bartles & James. uh, And wine coolers were the biggest alcoholic beverage in America. Right now, it's hard seltzers. Do you think wine uh, coolers will make a comeback? It's, you know, hard seltzers are kind of like the less sugary version of wine coolers. (laughs) The objective is the same, to get underage people buzzed or worse at house parties. (laughs) And so... um, Wine coolers rocked and rolled until 1991. I think people have asked me, whatever happened to those things, those people who remember them? Here's what happened to them. Congress – Congress happened to them. Congress (laughs) Congress raised the excise tax on wine uh, in 1991 from 17 cents a gallon to $1.07. And all of a sudden, all the wine cooler producers were – out of business. I think there's one or two brands left today. Uh, so anyway, those that's some of the look back stuff that you can find at uh, Adweek's 40 Years Bold page. Um, and then, I'm sorry, what else did you want to know? Something else that jumped out at me. That's all I plan to talk about is stuff that jumped out at me, Kamiko. <laughs> what <laughs> I want to tell you about Robert. <laughs> yes. I have a question. Like the this is a big picture thing, but like where would you say the industry, the advertising industry was when Adweek was launched in seventy nine? Because we're talking post Mad Men. Oh right? yeah. Like 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 those glory days well well, those days were over. You know, uh, but, here, but, but here's the thing though, David, they they were kind of ending, but they weren't completely over. I still think that there were enough three martini lunches going on in nineteen seventy nine. Um, and I'll tell you one thing that really has uh, stuck out uh, in, in all the reviews that I've done is in 1979, 1980, uh, into the early 80s, the advertising agency world was a constellation of small boutique shops. And then when the mid-80s hit, we started writing about consolidation and that scared the hell out of everybody. And in a sense, uh, you know, what we have now is the the kind of denouement of that trend that began all the way back then. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by that of just you go back and you read and ad agency life on the one hand was kind of glamorous and, and cool, but they were they were always cash poor. You know, these agencies and when these holding companies came in in the 80s and 90s and some of it was defensive, like Omnicom was formed because those U.S. agencies didn't want to get gobbled up by, you know, whoever was coming out of Britain or France. Um, But, you know, not only was it tempting to get bought up, I think in a lot of these cases, they simply had no choice because they just didn't have the money that uh, and you see that now with consultancies, right? Consultancies have more liquid uh, like sitting around than agencies could make in 10 years. And so you can't win a financial battle between like an ad agency and a global consultancy or in that case, a holding company. And that's how WPP's got so gigantic. But yeah, I mean, it 
it was a whirlwind uh, once these once these uh, ac- mergers and acquisitions started. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I think that was inevitable because if this actually has to do with the founding of Adweek itself, our three founders. Uh, started this magazine by slamming together three regional business publications that that covered advertising. Um, but one of them covered the Midwest, one of them covered LA, and one of them covered New York and the East Coast. And the reason Adweek was created uh, is because, and this is what they called it, the Americanization of Madison Avenue. So in a sense, consolidation was what created Adweek and consolidation was what ended up a few years later changing the agency world that Adweek covered. Chew on that. (laughs) Um, The unironic thing here is that we recently moved back to Madison Avenue, so that's cool, bringing it back full circle. Um, Outside of the work that you're doing on our site, you're doing some video hosting as well, right? I am doing some videos. Um, They duct tape me to a chair at various locations. And um, God, that's the second bondage joke I've made in this podcast. I was just going to say. Yeah, I just... Sorry, you know, the weekend's coming up. Anyway, um, so what I uh, one of the videos that I have done, uh, which I'm told will be posting in the next uh, few weeks, couple weeks perhaps, um, is five technologies that changed business before the internet came along. Because these days, when you hear about tech, it's always something related to the internet or some app or what have you. Um, but I think people tend to forget that technology was uh, was with us in the proverbial old days. And um, so some of the things that I talked about in that video uh, were the uh, – well, the home computer. I guess you could say that's digital, but it's not oh, the internet. The dial-up sounds? Uh, no, no. That was the modem, right? So now, Well, I'm a millennial. I just showed it. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a Gen X perspective then. <laughs> IBM came out with the first home computer – uh, a, a personal note here, my late father, who I lost last year, was a senior engineer with IBM who worked on the very first PC. And we had one in our house uh, before it hit the market. So it was called the uh, Model 5150, and it came out in 1981. I think, we do we have a clip of this? Yeah, possibly? yeah, yeah. Actually, let's go ahead and take a listen to that right now. When IBM introduced the 5150 to the market in August of 1981, fewer than 10% of American homes had computers. IBM's PCs weren't cheap. Its $1,565 list price comes to $4,300 in today's value. And it wasn't designed for the office either. But coming on the heels of the Apple II and IIe, the PC touched off the computer revolution and the surge in new machines, better software, and computer literacy overall meant an inevitable spillover into the advertising industry. Not only did the creative process change with the coming of computer graphics, but agency client lists swelled with work creating campaigns for computer makers. By 1983, computer companies were spending $500 million on advertising. Personal computers, Adweek said, just may be the best thing that has happened to advertising since Henry Ford rolled into the industry with the new Model T. So that was the IBM Model 5150. Uh, Just briefly, a few other technologies that changed business before the internet. Uh, Barcodes. Again, we don't think about this. You uh, buy something at the grocery store and a scanner uh, zaps the price. 
Um, those came in in 1974, just a few years before Adweek uh, uh, started off. Uh, the VCR, so you had Betamax first, but VHS coming in in 1977. And of course, that changed everything from movie going to how brands looked at uh, TV commercials and purchasing them. Um, and then uh, aspartame sweetener, which uh, is a bit of a head scratcher for people, but uh, that is now everywhere in the packaged foods business, soft drinks, snack foods. Uh, the FDA approved that in 1981. So I talk about all that in this riveting upcoming video that it will be posting soon. Hey, I've got a uh, I've got a fun game for us here. You guys want to play a game? Oh yeah, sure. I have I but so five years ago I was the one stuck with the re recapping. You know the the our, for our 35th anniversary, uh, some of the major moments in advertising from the years that Adweek had been around. I would like each of you to just randomly select a year, and I will throw out the random factoid we featured from that year. Oh, wow. wow. So, okay, so wait, wait. What's uh, the year range that we have here, David? Uh, that would be ending in, what, 2014? Okay. Um, All right. Yeah, so I wrote this in late 2013. Uh, Doug, throw us out a year. All right, I'll go with my graduation year from college, 1991. All right, 1991. Teal? Uh the number one hit song on the radio. What? No. Okay. Uh, oh, so this was the twenty, the birth of the twenty-four hour news cycle. Uh, uh, the, ra the rapid U.S. liberation of Kuwait and the yep. assault on Iraq and the Gulf War left advertisers scrambling to avoid looking insensitive as news became a twenty-four hour cycle. Many brands pulled their advertising from broadcast and cable, while others changed their media plans by the hour as the war progressed. Uh, and Diet Coke replaced its lighthearted Super Bowl ad with a somberly narrated uh, ad announcing a million-dollar donation to the USO. Uh, Kamiko, throw me a year. Um, can, is 2010 okay? Uh, yeah, just go for it. it. That's fine. Okay, just got to scroll. scroll I graduated high school. Okay. Shout out to Hillgrove. Uh, Old Spice became the the brand your brand could smell like. Uh, Isaiah Mustafa appeared in the first in his first Old Spice ad with the brands uh, at the hands of Wyden and Kennedy. Uh, they're they're kind of ladies. Does your man look like me? No. <laughs> yeah. Look at your man now. Back to me. Um, the so that ad debut. That's exciting. We actually just published a story. He's going to be in um, it chapter two, right? I've, yep, I don't yeah. know. Oh, man, creepy stuff. My yeah, favorite. big story. <laughs> Good story on uh, Adweek.com. Check out uh, what Isaiah Mustafa is up to now. His, his acting's pretty good, um, but I was glad to see he made it to it. I thought he was just still riding around on a white horse somewhere. Yeah, shirt, shirtless. <laughs> and, uh, all right, Robert, that leaves you. Pick a year. Uh, how about 2004? Wow. Why 2004? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking the economy was probably in a ditch at that point. Uh, everybody was staggering no, out of 9-11. Four, year, four years later, it was a ditch. Uh, I will let Doug guess what this one is. Crispin Porter Bogusky and the Barbarian Group create one of the most innovative campaigns of all time uh, with what? Oh, it's subservient chicken. With subservient chicken for Burger King. It was a kind of a fake Live feed. Uh, it looked like a live feed of someone in a giant, creepy, terrifying chicken suit. Uh, and you could give it commands. You would type in, like, dance or do the chicken dance or lay an egg, and it would do that thing. And it was all kind of flowed together so seamlessly. It did look like it was actually listening to you, and but it was just pre 
pre-recorded little things that would activate when you type that in. Uh, really was a game changer. I don't know how many normal human beings saw it or cared about it, but changed advertising. Uh, I was just getting into advertising right at that time, and no one would shut up about subservient chicken. Uh, I'm going to randomly <laughs> pick my for a year. I'm going to say 1980. Uh, three. There's no personal Ooh. connection to that year. I was alive. Um, but right. other than that, <laughs> um, well, okay. Well, this one's a, a little a little disappointing. Uh, Apple created its most iconic ad of all time, 1984. Uh, it actually, uh, and any true advertising nerd knows this. Um, 1984 did not debut in 1984. That's when it famously aired in the Super Bowl. But they snuck it in uh, to a very late night uh, time slot on the last day of 1983, uh, just so that it would qualify for award shows uh, the next year. It aired in like, uh, I think on a Idaho, a small town Idaho TV station. uh, And that was it. (laughs) I remember this. this One tiny market at like, you know, 1155 or whatever. Uh, And that was just so they could sneak it in. And no one saw it, of course. And then it made its big debut in the Super Bowl the next year. So that was your your hot advertising minute from 1983 and the (laughs) aforementioned years. Uh, Robert, can't thank you enough for coming on, and I really encourage everyone. You're you're just getting started, right? We got a lot more to do on this front. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm still going through everything. Uh, I wanted to mention one really quick thing: 1999 cover story from Adweek. Uh, now that we're kind of in quiz mode, uh, we talked about a 35 year old former hedge fund manager uh, who'd started a company that critics were calling a cult and a Ponzi scheme. You want to take a guess as to who that was? Facebook. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> a little too early for Facebook. It was Jeff Bezos no, 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 of Amazon. Ah, that was my next guess. Yeah. Oh. Yep. So yeah. back then, uh, we said uh, that Amazon would be lucky to beat uh, Barnes and Noble, um, and uh, <laughs> and we also said, oh, maybe, maybe Amazon would get around to dealing with that three hundred ninety million dollars worth of losses that they just had that year. And of course, if we come up to the present day. Uh, Barnes and Noble is now in the hole for 126 million, and Amazon's profits, last I checked, were 11 billion. So things change. I hope none of us put money bets on that. I hope none of us did. Kind (laughs) of wish I had bought some of that stock, actually. But (laughs) anyway, sorry. I just thought you might be interested in uh, going back to '99 and uh, and hearing about Mr. Bezos because I think a lot of people have heard of him. Yes, that's a good one. Uh, That was also 1999, the year that David Ogilvy died. Um, So. Just, uh, I would say, storied year. All right. Uh, this has been a blast. Uh, Kamiko, thank you, as always, for coming on and for uh, for all your, your fun contributions to everything except uh, food opinion. <laughs> always happy. Uh, Doug, thank you for uh, coming back and talking us through all the agency news. Great job on all that coverage and definitely encourage everybody to keep, keep checking you out uh, and uh, hope everything stays calm for you in Portland. Thank you. All right, Robert, can't thank you enough for all your historical gleanings. Thanks for coming back. It's entirely my pleasure. All right. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens with production assistance by Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, If you have not already, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. You can drop us an email anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Greiner uh, for Adweek, and we will be back next week.